Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Between the highly technical world of software engineering and the world of business journalism sits Derek Harris, a researcher at Mesosphere. In our interview, Derek draws on his broad array of experiences in history, from his past work at GigaOM to his present career at Mesosphere, a company building the data center operating system. Derek Harris is a senior research analyst at Mesosphere, makers of the data center operating system based on Apache Mesos. Derek has worked as a technology journalist for more than a decade and has experience covering big data, infrastructure, and artificial intelligence. Derek, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. You used to be a software journalist, which is my current job, and I think your current job is is somewhat similar in some ways, but... What were your goals as a software journalist? Hmm, that's a good question. Aside from keeping my job, <laughs> my goals were, I mean, I, I, what I always tried to do as a journalist was to, and I, and I think, I think you know, covering, covering software and covering, um, you know, as I did covering kind of quote unquote cutting edge software, you, you're given the opportunity, I think, to um, play, a, play a role of just, you know, my, what I always try to do is highlight what I thought was interesting, right? Or highlight, you know, what, what the big trends were. Um, you know, I think it's, I think, I think it's a lot, it, it, it can be a lot different than say a, you know, if you're a technology journalist and your beat is covering Silicon Valley startups and funding and all these things, right? You're always looking, for, you're looking for a scoop. You're looking for, you know, <laughs> who, who's doing what. I mean, you know, the, but, but, but when you're covering te- the technology <laughs> for the sake of the technology, often, I, I think, you know, it's really kind of fun because what I always try to do is like, okay, what, what am I seeing that's interesting? What's what's cool? Why is it cool? And 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 doing and and trying to give that to readers versus like, you know, kind of well, you know, so and so. I mean, that's part of the job is to is to cover the business of it, I guess. But the technology, to me, was always a little more exciting than the gossip. Yes. Well. Or, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, do do you see your did you see your role as explaining? Uh, technology products to other technologists or lay people. Uh, I, I mean, at, at Gigom, I don't, I don't suspect a lot of readers would be what you would call lay people. I think mm-hmm. it was a lot of, you know, I think it was, I think it was technologists. I think it was investors and executives. I mean, you know, we had, we were fortunate to have a pretty high level readership. Um, you know, C level type people and VP level type people. So yeah, it was just kind of to, to, you know, to, to tell, you know, people, people with obviously some very, with, with, with a vested interest in the space. Right. But I mean, no one can keep up with everything that's happening. Right. So you try to be that, 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 that gate, that filter, right. To, to, to kind of distill down to, you know, to filter out the noise and then distill the, still the stuff into kind of readable, readable pieces. So do, do you, do you think that there's room for, um, you know, journalist journalism sources that are more mainstream. You know, things like Wired or TechCrunch. Is there room for these outlets to become more technical or more uh, serious, or is that just like not what their audiences want? Yeah, th- I mean, that's a really good question. I think I happen to think there is room for the for for them to do that. Um, you know, and I don't know. I mean, Wired has listen. Wired is Wired. It's it does what it does, and it does it pretty well most of the time. And 
you know, I don't know that the Wired audience is necessarily the one, but I mean, there are definitely other outlets. Um, I worked at Fortune <laughs> briefly um, and and some other places where th- th- there's, there, there's enough the, 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 the business of technology and the technology of technology are kind of uh, converging, if you ask me. Yeah. And, and I, I think there is definitely a space for for some publications that maybe haven't had a strong tech, you know, that, that don't have, you know, decades of technological or, you know, what do you might call technical debt, I guess, in the in the software space. Right. I mean, that, that don't have to overcome all that. And they, they can look at things with fresh eyes. And I think, yeah, I mean, what Gigom did was very much said, you know what, we're going to cover, you know, we're not going to it's not going to be like reading a white paper or reading a, you know, a you know, some sort of, you know, a research paper, but it is going to be a little more technical because there's definitely, there how many, how many people work in technology, right? And <laughs> in this country and in Silicon Valley alone, there's plenty of readers who care to read more than just like, you know, the very high level of something. Well, so I think about like the, the finance industry and CNBC and like finance became very sexy at a certain point in time. And then you got this kind of mainstream channel that is CNBC, but you know, CNBC does some stuff that's like pretty in depth, pretty like technical from the finance perspective. Um, You know, I could totally see that go, like you said, the technology of technology and the business of technology are converging. So maybe there's some midpoint in between those where, uh, the mainstream will start to head towards once they realize, oh, if we want to better serve our uh, business audience, we have to teach them technical stuff or we have to talk about technical stuff on a, on a more uh, technical level. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I really, I, I don't believe, you know, some people seem to think that if you have a high level audience that they're, I don't want to say stupid, but like that they can't get it or they don't have the time to. But really, I think just there hasn't been a an effort to do it. And I think a CEO, for example, or, you know, certain executives, they're, they're, they're reading about this so much now and they're hearing it so frequently, you know, how important technology is and how software is eating the world and all these things. And they get it. They really mm. do. Right. And I, I think to have, you have to, some, at some point you have to <laughs> take that discussion a little further or a little deeper and, and take it away from just like, okay, I'll leave that to someone else. Cause you know, you might actually want to know, or, you know, have some, some educated opinions on, on what your company should do. And, for, and furthermore, like there, there's just, I mean, I, I just happen to believe there's a whole audience of underserved people who work in the tech space and who, who would like to see, who, who would like that sort of, that sort of material. I mean, you know, it's, it's a whole industry that we kind of, you know, the mainstream kind of looks at as, as, you know, over there, like these are the technical people and we're the mainstream people, but they want they there's millions of them the, the you know the the software industry is worth billions of dollars in the tech industry overall right and i you know i would just listen it's it's a, it's a readership waiting for the, the right sort of uh content i think well even as a software engineer like when i in my the earlier years of my career when i was just working on you know uh run the business uh, Java applications. And that was my, you know, if I wouldn't have done any external searching, that would have been my only conception of what software engineering is just this 
Java stuff, maintenance. Um, but thanks to certain media channels, certain like sophisticated media channels, um, I learned that, oh, there are different avenues of software engineering and software. Um, and then the more I explored that space, the, the bigger the gap I realized between what there could be and what there actually is. Um, anyway, so let's, you know, I, I'm curious, like, were you ever tempted to, to become an engineer or have you always been in this software journalistic type of role? Well, I mean, so my, <laughs> my education is a bachelor's in journalism and a law degree. <laughs> so engineering isn't really a, you know, I mean, education wise hasn't been, you know, a path I've ever really pursued, but I would, I mean, I've been tempted certainly to, you know, to, to, to learn, to, to learn to code, right. And to, you know, you know, at least, at least definitely learn parts of, you know, the, to the, to the technological part of what I do on the, on the other hand, um, you know, I, I think with, I think with anyone, it's kind of like you have your career <laughs> and if you, to, you know, to be good at it requires spending a significant portion of your energy on focus. It. And so, yeah, I mean, the, I, you know, the idea that, and I, I mean, I happen to think some, I don't, I don't want to be a, a, a naysayer right, or a skeptic, but like, you know, the idea that you could take a couple Coursera classes and do whatever and, and become <laughs> a, you know, a, a competent software engineer or programmer is ludicrous and in some, to some degree, right? Because, you know, people who are good at this, that's all they do. They live, they eat, sleep and breathe. Um, engineer, they, they eat, sleep and breathe at that, right? So I don't think like <laughs> it's, it's not, yes. I mean, I, I have a working understanding of <laughs> obviously uh, of, of how stuff works, but yeah, no, it's, you know, and yes, I've been tempted to consider it, but it's like, well, am I going to, am I willing to quit my day job and study so this just, because, you know, did you get this understanding of like, uh, you know, data center operating system and, uh, you know, all the, all the you know, data center operating system is like, that's a concept that requires so many other things to, to kind of begin to approach. Like, for example, did, in order to understand compilers, right? Like, did you just read the Wikipedia article on compilers or, uh, like to what degree do you, do you, do you feel you have to understand how code works and, and how technology works? Well, the great thing about being a journalist, frankly, is that you can, you know, a lot of times you can just ask people how things work. Right. And so, I mean, I was fortunate enough that when I graduated from college, my first job was, and I had no computer science experience whatsoever. My first job was covering grid computing and high performance computing. And so I would spend all day write, reading and writing about, you know, these like big research Globus and TerraGrid and these big research efforts back in the early 2000s and, and speaking with, you know, these professors and other academicians who were running these things. And, and I learned, you know, you start to, you just start to pick things up over time. Right. Mm. And that was kind of a trial by fire, but I mean, I can't, you know, the number of hours I've spent speaking with really smart people. Like and, and and reading papers and reading documentation and all these things, you started to pick it up over time. I mean, it's been now what twelve years, thirteen years. Like you kind of, you know, over that over that amount of time, I guess you just you've seen so much more than you, than you might realize or heard so much more. Hmm. Interesting. Do you have any? like tips or techniques. So like, you know, I'm, you know, I am a software journalist at this point and, you know, many of the times when I'm 
trying to research a topic or understand a topic, it's like, you know, yesterday I did some crazy, I worked on some or studied some crazy front end technology. And, you know, today I'm uh, doing something that's in the back end, like Spark. Um, and as I'm going from place to place and trying to understand and comprehend these different technologies and figure out the right questions to ask, it's really hard to know where to delve further and where to just say, okay, you know, I'm going to leave that as a known unknown. How, do you have any tips for like dealing with that? Yeah. I mean, I think it helps to know your audience, first of all. So my audience has never been one where it's like, where, where, where people would come down and look, look to anything I was writing, expecting, I think, to read like a, a how-to manual, right? Or like a very deep dive into, you know, the, the inner workings of a technology, I think. You know, I, I always looked at it as like how deep, I mean, there, there's a level of how deep even you understand it and how deep you're willing to write it. <laughs> because, you know, for certain audiences, it's just, it's lost, right? I mean, especially if you're publishing something online, you know, for for, for a web audience, um, you know, under a, what you might call a, a news publication or a news outlet or anything other than a, a technical outlet. I think the, this is expected that there's a higher level um, conversation, right? And I kind of always try to focus on, A, here's where the technology is cool, but then B, here's how, here's why this is important to you for, you know, this, this business, this business level reason, right? Or here's how it's connected to the other five things that you've been hearing about for the past two years, right? And I think, you know, I think there's some of that, that bigger picture um, discussion is where I've always focused my, my energy. Mm. So it, it really depends on the audience. So, I mean, obviously there are outlets where, you know, people really want to <laughs> dive deep and have a, a serious conversation about the, the technological merits or the shortcomings. Sure. sure. Okay. So let, let's talk about Mesosphere. What is Mesosphere? That's a great – well, Mesosphere is a company. Um, I, I know that. <laughs> so, so, and the layer of the atmosphere, I'm told. Um, the, our, so, Mesosphere is essentially, you know, the, the, the core of our, our product, like you mentioned, it's called the data center operating system. The, the core of which, the, the, you know, speaking in OS lingo, the kernel of which is Apache Mesos. And then that handles a lot of the – the scheduling and and resource aggregation and allocation, um, and then you know on, on top of that, and you can go and read you know any number of Mesos case studies or or use cases right from some of the biggest companies in the world, including Apple, right? So so that part of it is is you know solid unknown. Um, what what we've done on top of that is create what we call this operating system, which is essential, which is to say, here is. You know, like, you know, an analogy we like to use is like Linux is to Android, Mesos is to the DCOS. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to build and we think we have built a higher level, more abstracted um, way to build applications, to build, you know, modern applications, right? So we built a technology called Marathon, which is you know, for running long running applications, use it for container management, that sort of thing at some, some high availability. Um, we built Kronos for batch, actually Kronos was built by our founders at, at Airbnb, but well, they were at Airbnb, but for, 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 for scheduling batch jobs. Um, so we built, you know, we, we connect into all these other applications, you know, we have, um, service discovery and load balancers and, um, you know, we connected to other applications and frameworks and, and whatever, right, to really give you this full OS experience. And then, of course, 
there's, there's a user interface attached, you know, higher security. I'm just rattling off like a marketing spiel at this point. But I mean, think <laughs> about the things when you think about a product, essentially, when you think about an operating system and a productized operating system, right? Sure. That's, that's, the, that's the kind of thing we're trying to deliver on top of Mesos, which is essentially the, the kernel of this. Can, can, can you describe in more detail what are the responsibilities of the Mesos kernel versus the DCOS? Well, yeah, I mean, so, so the Mesos kernel is, I mean, the, the Mesos kernel, like I said, handles, you know, the, the, the real resource level um, sc- scheduling of stuff, right? So it's going to decide, you know, which, I mean, it's going to aggregate your resources, right? So it's going to take your, let's say, a thousand CPUs and whatever terabyte of RAM and, and, and turn that into a pool. Right. Um, and then it's going to, and it's, and then it's going to, it will allocate where it will decide where any given framework that you're running on top of Mesos wants to run. Um, that'll be, let's say you're running spark and marathon and you could run Kubernetes, you could run whatever things you want to run. Right. I mean, Mesos is deciding, where those are running, where there's room for them, right, and handling the the resource isolation, that part of the job. The DCOS mm-hmm. is the DCOS is really where where you say, okay, um, one example, I want to install a new service, right? Well, so, so you use the DCOS uh, command line interface, let's say, and you're you're installing this thing in in four words: DCOS package install. Let's say you want to do HDFS or Kafka, right? And just insert Cassandra. Just insert your your package afterward, right? Um, there's the user interface, right? So you want to take a look at where, you know, which which of your services are running, how fast, you know, what the performance is. Um, get, get some service le- or some server level or some resource level metrics. You know, we, there's there's a user interface for that. Um, there are various other features you know tied into that and we there's there, there's security uh, authentication there is. so so tell tell me how glossy of an understanding this is but like is so so mesos is as you say the kernel and it's doing the lower level resource management and the scheduler the marathon scheduler is the marathon scheduler the interface between the mesos um resource allocator and the other frameworks so like you know if if spark wants to do something using the underlying resources does it have to go through marathon no it doesn't well marathon what what a lot of people use marathon to do is to run i guess it's sort of longer running services that 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 require you know spark you might spin up a spark you might spin up a spark cluster on the dcos run your run your jobs and then and then kill it um you know marathon is usually for longer running sorts of applications you could host a web app uh, a you know a, a jboss or a ruby app let's say on you know and, and run that on marathon it's go it's going to run on there um marathon's actually a meta framework you know we have there's a concept of frameworks in mesos right so spark would be a framework cassandra would be a framework marathon would be a framework and and marathon but marathon is kind of a meta framework and that it's able to launch anything on top of it it's kind of confusing you have to go but but marathon could you could launch another mesos cluster on top of marathon for example and it would just it would run that as another. So you know, marathon does not have to be part of it. We think it's a valuable part of it. If you look at a lot of co- a lot of companies, what they're doing is they're using marathon as a container orchestration layer. Um, so so you're able to deploy and manage your Docker containers using using marathon. 
Mm. So that and, and they're build, building a platform as a service layer on top of that. That's what Yelp did, what um, Autodesk did, what, what a handful of other companies have done. So, but then Twitter runs without using Marathon, right? So um, it's it's really. I mean, the nice thing is it's modular, so you can pick and choose which parts of these you want want to use. Um, but yeah, Marathon is not necessary, but we think it's valuable, and certainly a lot of a lot of users are finding a lot of value in it. Okay. So you've said that uh, Mesosphere is a new platform, but the same technologies that you came to love covering as a journalist. What are those technologies that you came to love covering? Well, you know, I think, you know, I, I think it's more the concepts, let's say. So like I said, I, when, when I started, when I started as a journalist, I was covering grid computing a lot, right? And, the, and the, some of the ideas of that are, um, you know, inherent in this, right? The idea of, you know, aggregating res- a pool of resources. Um, I always thought when cloud computing, I always thought the, the major promise of cloud computing was not that you would take, <laughs> you, you would just provision a new server, but it would be done remotely, right? Um, you know, the, the, the ideas of how you build new applications need to, need to change, right? And, mm-hmm. and we kind of took, I think, you know, I would say that, you know, let's say in 2000, whatever, before Amazon Web Services, essentially, <laughs> somewhere between 2000, you know, four and 2006, 2007, we were kind of making progress in this idea that, you know, this is what, this is what new resource management was going to look like. This is what your infrastructure was going to look like. It would be a, a cloud or a pool of resources and applications would, you know, get what they need and, and kind of be isolated. And, you know, so this is the same idea of how Mesos or the DCOS handle resource management. But what happened is then, Amazon Web Services came along and it made provisioning servers just the same type of server you always used to get, just so much easier. But I think we kind of took a step back. Oh, and we said like, interesting. Okay, well, you know, forget about all that for a while because now we can to put it, you know, we can get, give our credit card number, just spin up servers like IT. That whole idea of not wanting to go through IT for every little thing was kind of solved. And then, you know, it kind of, but then, you know, I mean, not to be long winded, but then, Slow, you know, but then soon enough, these new these new application architectures started shaping up because people were like Netflix helped you know I, th- I think lead a lot of thinking around this. Like, wow, think of all the the amazing things you can do because of how easy it is and how these you know how the API access and how how you can control you know this this new kind of level of control you have over your over your resources. And then you know slowly but surely containers came and whatever, and we made our way back to this. And I think yeah. we're, fi- we're finally there. Now, all these things have coalesced. So virtualization, cloud computing, grid computing, um, containers, all these things. And I think, you know, I think Mesosphere ha- tapped into, you know, the, the, in my mind, at least, which is why I went to work for the company, the best way that I've seen of, of really presenting this as, as a way to just harness all of these things that we've been talking about for the past decade. Yeah, you said Mesosphere is trying to help companies manage their infrastructure applications and services how Google and Facebook do. So what are the aspects of Google and Facebook infrastructure that uh, Mesosphere is helping to democratize? Yeah, so, so I mean, I think the first, the primary thing is that they're automated. Um, and they're, you know, so, so it's kind of automation, scale, um, all the, you know, all these things you might hear about, you know, one of the things that I think is, is kind of funny is for, for years we talked about, you know, like, well, you would, you, of course you'd want to buy servers from Amazon. You want to buy servers from Google, right? You want to buy these, these resources, but the reality is that you actually, 
a lot of people want to run their own data centers and they, but they, and they want to run like those companies do. They don't just want, they want to use the same design principles. And that means, for example, I mean, if you look at Google and it's, it's kind of famous Borg system for, for resource management, right? I mean, that's a cluster. It's not unlike Mesos in a lot of ways, at least theory, at least in, at its foundational level. Like you have a, you have a, a big pool of resources and, you know, developers are writing against that. They're not, they're right. They're essentially saying, you know, what, what level of resources their things need and they're deploying them in some way. Right. Um, you know, it, it takes down. So you have, you have fewer operational, you have a need for, you know, probably, I don't want to say fewer, but your operational overhead is a lot less because, you know, the system is not designed on a server by server basis. It's a pool and it's expected that some things are going to fail. Right. Some, some, some nodes are going to die. And, you know, um, so what I'm saying is it's, I think it's just, it's an easier way of thinking about this instead of, you know, Google managing a million or Facebook managing a million servers, right? They, yeah. I mean, they are technically, they're managing one big ass computer and like, and everything is written against that. So, so I think it makes a lot, life a lot easier for developers, which is one thing we're definitely seeing <laughs> like, well, you know, software architects and, you know, the, the engineering folks are going, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to do continuous deployment and continuous integration and, and all these things and, con- you know, container launch, do, do Docker. And we're going to use Mesos as the basis of it because it, it just makes it so much simpler to manage and to envision the infrastructure that way. Um, so yeah, so go ahead. Spe- speaking of envisioning the infrastructure, part of the work that Mesosphere is doing is building this great user experience, this great UI, the type of user experience that people would expect from smartphones and web apps and what are the challenges that come from building a great user experience for the data center? Well, I mean, I, I, our design team would probably, you know, our, our obviously a front end team would would have more perspective on this. But you know, my take, you know, I mean, from what I, from what I grasp and just you know, kind of, um, you know, just just my thoughts on the matter is that I, I think one, you have to think about it in the sense if if you're if you're talking about a large scale data center, how you you know you can't just you can't just put whatever 50,000 servers on, on someone's desktop screen, right? And be like, okay, here's how they are looking, right? It's not, it's not that simple, right? So, I mean, distilling a large, complicated um, infrastructure down into, into you know, digestible visualizations, um, I, think that's, I think that's really important. I think just getting the, again, again, showing, I mean, you have to show people what they need, you know, like the, like the first screen is to show, you know, show someone whatever the 80-20 rule, right? Show the majority of people whatever they need, what, what they're going to need to see. But, and then you have to make it intuitive enough to dive down and drill into this at a more nuanced level or at a, you know, a more personalized level. And I think, you know, historically, right, it's been, you know, systems management. So I'm not, not that this is systems management software per se, but... You know, that, that's been kind of, you know, I, I think not a, a very <laughs> nice user experience. It's been kind of, you know, everything has kind of been ugly and, and you know, very rigid. <laughs> like, this and, is this is what you can see. This is how you see it. And I think we're trying to make that a much more, you know, everyone says like the Google, you know, the the Google experience of X, right? But I think that's a fair comparison in some way. Like, mm. <laughs> what, do you, what do you need to see now? And how easy is it to find out what else you need to find out? Right. Okay. And I that think, makes sense. And then, yeah, and I mean, and doing that is just, just something that I don't think has been done <laughs> at this scale before. You know, no one has yeah. come and said, 
how are you going to, how are you going to look at how, you know, let's say four dozen services distributed, four dozen distributed systems are running across this other, you know, 10,000 servers, for example, right? Like that's, that's a much more realistic thing that that's, that happens now. And I don't think there's been a lot of effort, you know, aside from what, from what we're doing to say, how, how are you going to help someone kind of visualize this and, and, and monitor it? So zooming out, uh, Mesos and Spark and Tachyon are all these tools that came out of the Berkeley Amp Lab. And each of them are having uh, companies built around these technologies. And on Software Engineering Daily, we've done some shows trying to grasp the implications of these different new technologies. And I'm, I'm really curious if you have any perspective on how these things shift the big data stack or, you know, what, what would formerly have been called the Hadoop stack. Now there's not so much Hadoop left in it. Can, can you give your views on how these things are changing because of the, this Berkeley stack of technologies, Mesos, Spark, and Tachyon? Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you talk to anyone today, and including the Hadoop company, you know, the former Hadoop company, quote unquote Hadoop companies, Spark is, you know, like the de facto system for for all of their batch processing and, and increasingly uh, stream processing, right? So essentially, if you're processing data, there's a good chance you're looking at Spark right off the bat, right? <laughs> I think I think so. I think that is is definitely a big deal. And Tachyon, I mean, I haven't heard a lot of you, you know Tachyon in the wild stories yet, frankly. <laughs> However. Um, it's, it's exciting. The one thing I think, you know, this is just the Tachyon Spark connection. You know, I think one thing that you, that you could realistically see happen is, you know, in a, in a decade or so, a, a group of, a group of companies that start as startups or small businesses and grow, and they never really even have to worry about hard disks. <laughs> like, right. like you say, HDFS is a core of Hadoop right now. And that's very true. <laughs> HDFS is the one thing, no matter what happens, like that's where all the data is. However, if you're a small company and you can fit your data in memory on Amazon or wherever, and it's relatively cheap and memory prices continue to drop as your data grows and, you know, the performance is so much better and Tachyon matures and all these things and, and Spark runs so much faster in memory and it's sort of doing your data processing. Anyhow, like conceivably, there's not a lot of need for, uh, you know, these, these big sort of, you know, a, a sort of a hard disk right now. And frankly, I mean, even on Amazon right now, you can't get a spinning disk you can get an ssd and and memory and ram right and i think so so i think that's going to make be a big change over time just as you see you know in memory databases and processing and and whatever so i think i think that will be one thing just on the straight up like you know what happens with storage and what happens with hadoop i think you'll see a, a lot conceivably you know these the next generation of companies are just like well whatever we're going to do everything in memory because it's cheap enough to do it and and the other thing is that you know, and where Mesos comes into the picture is that it makes it so much for big data in particular, it makes it so much easier to install these things. Like I wasn't mm. joking before. I mean, when you say when you type DCOS package install Spark, it installs Spark. <laughs> like that that's not it installs in minutes, probably. That is not a the, the usual Spark installation experience, <laughs> right? Where <laughs> Yeah, I think I heard at Airbnb when they first were getting Spark uh, up and running Spark or Storm, whatever their first, you know, it took like two or three weeks or something, like just to get, just to get this stuff wired up. And that was Airbnb where they had some pretty smart people on the engineering team. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's going to be a, 
a kind of a game changer, frankly. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, we have we have a product not to not to pitch too much, but we have a product that we're building called Infinity, which we announced in August, and it's yeah, at, pre- at, at present as presently constituted, Spark, Cassandra, the ACA framework, and Kafka, right? I mean, so what do you what what you need to build? Let's say a Internet of Things application, right? You have and you know, a, a database, a, you know, real-time database um, processing and, and then Spark or Kafka is kind of the, the message, the message queue in there. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, the, you, you know, the, the goal is that that installs as a fully operational data pipeline. Um, so the, what used to take, you know, a team of engineers to deploy, I think is going to be installable by, you know, someone in, in a command or two. And that's going to be, a real game changer because all of a sudden, and, he, and this, I think this comes down even to the developer, right? So you don't need to be a software. You don't, you don't need a software architect to install Hadoop anymore. Right. I mean, that would, or spark, that would be something. Um, yeah. You could get, a, and a, to the extent you understand, you know, the, the language, maybe you don't need a data scientist. All of a sudden you're a developer. You're like, okay, I can install this and run a job and, or, you know, into whatever connect, you know, build, build this into my application in some way. And it, it all it, the just the heavy lifting is going. Yeah, to be. I mean, we, we start to see these. You know, we've seen this kind of with npm and um, with maybe you could say Docker Hub. Uh, these different experiences of sharing code and making for easy package management and installation. Um, so interesting. Okay, well, you know. I want to talk some about this blog that you started on Medium somewhat recently. It was back in May. Uh, it's a blog called Scale, and um, yeah. So, I mean, what what are your goals with with the Scale blog? What do you what kinds of material are you trying to cover? The goal of the Scale blog, honestly, is just to to kind of I think keep advancing or, or keep just keep to keep a discussion. Happening, I you know, a, what I think is a high level kind of valuable discussion around the, you know, the the, the technologies and the businesses that are that are driving, mo, you know, t- today's businesses, right? So, um, okay, so yeah. iconic of this is like you did an interview with Doug Cutting, who is one of the original creators of Hadoop. What what were the biggest takeaways from your conversation with Doug? Well, I, well, I thought so. With Doug, you know, one thing I tried to focus on was just you know the. The open Doug is you know an open source like guru at this point. He's done so many big projects in the open source, or at least two really important ones. <laughs> and um, I think you know from from Doug, I was just trying. I really want to talk about you know how these open source projects mature into businesses and how how you manage the business aspects of an open source project compared with the open source aspects and the engineering aspects of an open source project, and and how. You know how to tackle these things, right? Um, I think you're talking about like governance versus yeah, I'm talking accidents. about yeah, governance, but also like you know the community wants to do one thing, a company wants to do another thing. There are you know in the with Apache, there are trademarks involved, and you know people want to call something Hadoop, but Cloudera doesn't want to call it Hadoop. And there's just there's so many things there are so many things at play. I think that you know I've just and then again this is you know very specific to to the interview with Doug, but that I think I think people are really interested in like. Doug's thoughts on how how does because everyone wants you know everyone is building an open doing something in the open source today right um, so many of the technologies that people use are open source and you know there, there's just all these questions about like well if I want to monetize this what's the best way to do it if I want to pick a project 
what's what's the best way to look at you know which project's going to be around for a while which project is is going to be right for me if i want to um you know if i want to bet my you know if i want to contribute to something if i want to bet my company on a technology like you know there, there's a lot to consider and i think doug you know has i mean he's biased in some regards obviously but in other ways you know i think he's a very good source of information about just kind of how how open source projects mature and you know how and how you know how people should think about this aspect of their career well so and one thing he said was when he was speaking to cloudera he said that it was more appropriate for cloudera to follow rather than lead because there's such a wide surface area of places that are using hadoop and they all solve different problems uh you know like that's for example how we ended up with kafka that's how we ended up with spark as these kind of de facto uh, products and they were both they both came from radically different places you know one came from from LinkedIn one came from Berkeley uh, so it's really hard to know in advance where things are going to go so I think what you know one of the things I took away from that interview was that follow rather than lead uh, idea but I mean is that is that how Cloudera was in the early days or were they trying to shape the 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 direction of Hadoop a little more aggressively. I, no, I think it was very much follow. Um, I okay. think it's always been that way. You know, the, when you look at the two things Cloudera has done, well, I mean, so you, you have to look at it in a couple ways. One, you know, I, and to Doc's point, like yes, it would not be prudent for a company to sit and go, you know, look at let's say a dozen, half a dozen projects, all do open source projects doing the same thing. Go, we're going to pick a winner, and then the community goes, yeah, we're going to pick, we're going to pick a different winner, right? And then all of a sudden, you're kind. I mean, I think that's what he's talking about. You have to see all these things play out, see what, see what the community wants, see where the development is actually happening, right? So you don't have to take it all on, and 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 that, and then you know, embrace and adopt. On the other hand, Cladera has you know created. I think where it where it really saw a need, it acted with Impala. And then with um, Kudu, it's 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 more recent um, storage system, and and also you know even with some open source projects. I mean, the one thing that companies like Cloudera and Hortonworks and even Mapbar do is they go, well, we're gonna start our own open. You know, we're we're go- we're going to do something in the open source to try to get this project off the ground, right? So Apache Century, I believe, is kind of a Cloudera. I hope I'm not mi- mixing up the, uh, the the distribution battles here, but I mean, Cloudera has its open source security play. Uh, Mapbar and Hortonworks have their open source security plays, right? So it's kind of, I mean, I think they still try to shape it sometimes in the open source and sometimes via product development. But product development is pr- probably kind of a last resort in some regards, in some mm. respects. So you've mentioned security a couple times in in this conversation. What? What is the conversation around security in the big data space? I, I mean, honestly, I, I I don't know that there has always been much of one. Um, you know, and today I, it's a lot of. I mean, today I still think as much as I mean, it's been a while, frankly, since I've since I've spoken with you know people in the big data space about security. But you know, I mean, it's it's it's. I think it's still in its nascency. Frankly, I mean, you're worried about. Access, access control, authentication, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you're, and then, but, but now it's getting to the point where you're, you're worrying about, you know, I think there are companies, um, Squirrel, which is based on the, the Cumulo technology, right, is doing kind of um, open, you know, what I would say, like, like cell level security, right? I think there's lots of talk about encryption now. Um, you know, the game is just so, the, the cybersecurity space has, 
has become so important in such a short time frame, it seems like. Mm. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, meanwhile, the big data space has been kind of humming along and like, well, we'll solve these things piece by piece. <laughs> and then not because, I mean, to, I mean, the goal, you know, I, I think when, when Hadoop started, certainly there wasn't a massive security breach every day. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like, but I, I do think there is this fear of kind of, you know, so I mean, yeah, that's just like, we now realize this is very important. I think people realize it's very important to secure data and how are you going to do that? And, you know, I, I think that frankly, one of the big challenges that all security plays have today, including the big data players is like, you know, data, just there's so many endpoints <laughs> at this point, right? And mm-hmm. so many network security is great on the internal network, but what about when you're at Starbucks, right? Or what about, you know, your mobile phone versus your desktop versus, I mean, how many devices do I personally connect online with, right? Like how do you, I mean, keeping track of some of these things I think is all the, just all the access points is one thing. And then in big data. And then when you have, when you tie in the applications of big data, the internet of things, let's say, right. All of a sudden you're talking not just about like, well, I'm keeping a, you know, I have this data lake and I'm keeping it secure, but like how many things can talk to that in some way, shape or form, like a million devices out there. Right. So yeah, I think it's yeah, and there was there's a a podcast I actually listened to this morning. Uh, it's O'Reilly has a pretty good big data podcast where Ben Lorica interviews various people, and uh, he was actually interviewing Ben Horowitz in in this episode. And um, you know, he was asking, I think he was asking Ben Horowitz about the security stuff, and Ben Horowitz said, you know, what companies are realizing is that uh, it's it's hard to defend your data center against a nation state. You know, you like China, China is if, you know, if China can attack um, or if you think of whatever, if the nation yeah. state is referring to as China or Russia or whatever you want to call it, if they can, you know, get into JP Morgan, they can definitely get into, you know, any of these, uh, some, some smaller company. I think the narrative that they were going at was like, uh, was was partially a discussion of the on-prem versus uh, versus cloud stuff. Like like when does the conversation begin to shift to um, cloud being being safer? You know, the, I think early. My understanding is early on in this in the discussion of cloud, like should we move to the cloud? Security was like the down like a downside risk of yeah. of moving to the cloud. Now it's like you move to the cloud, you get the best security and you get to pass the buck right you pass the buck to amazon hey we didn't get hacked amazon got hacked yeah well i remember i think at the first gigom structure conference i remember i think it was a uh, someone from sun Microsystems. so that tells you how long ago that happened right but someone was like i mean, it was like andy andy not andy bechtelstein someone i don't know someone from sun anyhow but he was like he was like oh yeah the uh you know the the analogy was essentially do you trust the bank with your money or do you keep it under your mattress like it's kind of that same sort of, yes. and you know that was the idea with the cloud thing. But yeah, and I, you know, one in, in one regard, I think open source might be a you know a, a, might be a boon to security in this regard, right? Because you know, I you know, I think one thing you always hear is that software engineer the software quality tends to be higher with an open source project, just because there are so many eyes on it and so many um, sure you know, people in bizarre and yeah, so there are companies out there troubleshooting it and. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a very, um, you know, it, it tends to lead to a robust software product, which is one reason, you know, why, why, why its adoption of it is so much higher. It's not just because it's free, because it's never 
big companies pay for stuff no matter what, right? Usually. <laughs> so, but, or in either engineering costs or in license costs. But yeah, the, I think the code quality tends to be a bit higher, but you know, I, I don't know if that makes a difference cloud versus, you know, private data center, frankly. And also <laughs> I just, I just hear that discussion. I go, but I mean, how, what scares me with security, I guess, is let's say all your systems are as secure as they can be. Like, as soon as you send a phishing email to someone and <laughs> and hook them, and then you're you know what I mean, and then you take control of some you know someone's machine and you have their permissions, well, it becomes a different story, and that's where this other you know this other aspect of big data and security comes into play, which is the huge emphasis in the past several years around like machine learning and AI for security, and this idea that you know algorithms are going to be able to detect malicious behavior as it's happening, mm-hmm. or or somehow, you know, do, you know, have this anomaly detection that's, uh, and if that happened, I mean, man, that would, that would be a big, you know, I know there's a lot of money being <laughs> invested in, in making that happen. I hope it works because that, that does seem to be kind of the, the big challenge. You know, I think the more uh, realistic, well, the, the way that I envision this is that it's just like this latent cold war thing where like everybody is already sitting in everybody else's uh, infrastructure and you know the, everybody's got a gun pointed at each other um in terms of if we're talking about nation states at least and uh i think you know the people that would be in charge of pushing the big red button to set off the cybersecurity war uh don't you know they they're they don't have any incentive to do that because it would just blow up the world but that's you know that's probably uh that's probably a more of a fantasy scenario um this is why i should stay a journalist or perhaps <laughs> perhaps move into the fiction the fan fiction um big data fan fiction Maybe that's a place to go into i don't know if that's so <laughs> such an such a crazy idea honestly mm-hmm. i mean especially at the at the nation you know when you're talking about like the the nation state level or the you know the, the geopolitical level right Maybe if you're talking about your credit card data Right, I think it's a different, sure. a different sort of story. But. Sure, I mean, I'm honestly like, I'm not so worried about like getting my credit card. Like, sure, fine, get my credit card data stolen, sink my bank account, not a big deal. I can make back money. You can't make back an apocalyptic, uh, you know, blow up the world, uh, blow up a power grid scenario. Um, okay, so so go, but going back to that 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 Doug Doug cutting interview. So one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting was. He said he's concerned about what he called single technology companies. I don't know if you remember that part of the yeah, conversation, yeah. but w- what is the difference between a single technology company and the type of company that he would see as more resilient? Okay, I think I think what Doug was getting at there is this idea of, you know, I mean, so in his case, Cloudera. Cloudera is not the Hadoop company. It is a company that incorporates... I mean, how many open source projects does, it te- does its product incorporate, right? Like, a do- you know, <laughs> two dozen. Um, it's a stack, essentially. You're buying into a stack of things, a platform. Uh, I think, you know, I would argue, I would, I would put Mesosphere in that category, too. I mean, it's not just like we're the Mesos company. No, we're, you know, we're all, there are many different components of this thing, right? Uh, they're all and, and technologies that are part of this. One of the technologies that Doug and I talked about, and I don't know if it made it into the interview or not because it's the... The flow was, was like Apache Flink, for example, which popped yeah. up as, um, you know, the sort of newer competitor to Spark. Sure. And and I think the, the idea there was kind of, you know, does it does it make this bet to be like we're the Apache Flink <laughs> company or, you know, 
because you know you don't know what the life you don't know what the the life span of that technology is. Mm-hmm. If 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 Flink doesn't catch on, if Spark advances, because Spark already has this huge community behind it, you know, do do you want to make your bet on this one new technology being the thing essentially? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think I mean if Cloudera had said we're the and any of these companies are like, you know, we're going to be Hadoop and we're not going to look at any other technology. That wouldn't have been a horrible idea. And, you know, and I, th- I think that's what he's getting at. I mean, you don't want to be the, <laughs> I don't even know what the, and I, don't, I mean, I think there are, and there are these, these bits and pieces of that floating around these little projects or technologies where you go, it could be interesting, but, but at the end of the day, I mean, what is the, the real, like, why isn't it just this, why isn't this just a feature of a bigger platform, right? Or why yeah. isn't this just a, and, and maybe, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't quite the case because everything was a proprietary technology and you, you would buy that one thing. But today it's not really, that's not really the case oftentimes. Yeah. It, we kind of are entering into unprecedented territory and, you know, companies like, Kafka or sorry, Confluent or um, Databricks, uh, it's hard to imagine for me at least like these companies failing because uh, the technology is just so widely adopted. But on the other hand, you could consider them, I don't know, the single technology companies. But uh, I mean, I, I did have a conversation with Flavio Junquiera, who is the, the guy who made Zookeeper. And I asked him basically, so why did you productize Zookeeper? And I, I don't remember his exact answer, but I think it was something along the lines of just like, you know, there's not a really straightforward way to do it. Like, what is the, what is the zookeeper product? Right. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I mean, listen, I think I, there's been a lot of discussion about Databricks, you know, and, and how that's going to play out. Um, because a lot of people, I think, look at it and say, well, okay, it's a spark company, but so is Cloudera and Hortonworks now is <laughs> a spark company. So, yeah, and I, th- I think you look at you, you see all this investment and all this excitement and, and, you know, Confluent is probably that way, too. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I think Doug would say, I hope they have a platform play, right? <laughs> because, it, you know, you have to you really have to like a lock in thing. Well, yeah, a lock in thing or just like bet on a stack of things because God mm-hmm. forbid, you know, like Kafka doesn't turn out to be the thing that that ultimately <laughs> wins in the end. I mean, if you're Cloudera, you can go, okay, well, we support a Kafka. That's not the thing now. So now the thing is X, right? Right. <laughs> and so yeah, I, I think that's what he was getting at. It just it becomes so risky because these things are popping up so fast that you really have to look to the future and say, okay, how can we make this a great product and make sure it, it is the thing if we're going to mm-hmm. bet on that one technology? Very interesting. Okay. Well, Derek, it's been really awesome talking to you. I could talk to you for hours, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily and, and talking about big data. And I'm I'm excited about Mesosphere, obviously, as you can tell by the different interviews I've done with your coworkers. And um, hope to keep in touch. All right, thanks. I hope it was interesting. Yes, it was definitely interesting. 